0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Bukowski. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Today's podcast is nothing short of remarkable. I'm actually going to love sharing this conversation with you, Dr. Emily Splickle. I'm sure I didn't say that correctly, but Emily Splickle joins us today to discuss your feet and why I've become obsessed with the function of feet and how ultimately this is implicated in so many things we do. From the time we're born, we're shoved into these garments that ultimately restrict the function and form of our feet. So many people, if not everyone, have dysfunctional feet, misshapen feet. And this is massively implicated in the way that we walk, which then transfers up into our mobility in the hips and the spine and the shoulder. And the foot seems to be the foundation of everything we do. And I often speak of you know, functional movements existing in the breath pattern and in the walking gait and if you're not someone who's aware of how much gait is influencing your uh, body, how much breathing is influencing your body, you're missing out. So anything you do that stacks on top of dysfunctional walking or ultimately dysfunctional breathing or it's going to be dysfunctional of itself. It has to be dysfunctional by definition. So today's podcast dives deep into understanding the modern foot and lifestyle and footwear. You guys know I've become a massive fan of Vivo Barefoot. It's literally the only thing I own. Um, but why? Most importantly, it allows my foot to do what it's meant to do. It allows the foot to function correctly. It allows me to strengthen the muscles of the feet so that ultimately they can become a shock absorbing unit like they're meant to be. The foot and ankle can move correctly, allow the hip to move correctly. I don't want to spend too much time talking about this stuff because Emily gets into an extensive list of things that you need to know and action items you can immediately take to change your walking pattern. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by Real Mushrooms. Hooray for Real Mushrooms. Thank you so much to Real Mushrooms for actually providing us with high-quality mushrooms. So many things on the market right now, guys, are not legitimate mushrooms, and you guys will hear this very soon on the podcast I have with one of the owners of Real Mushrooms uh, coming soon. RealMushrooms.com slash Ben will actually get you 30% off any of the mushrooms you know I buy Lion's Mane. I should be buying it by the truckload. I use Reishi endlessly. I'm now using Cordyceps and I've been experimenting with this for about a month and I'm really liking it as far as its effect improving my performance. So three to five grams of Lion's Mane in my coffee, three to five grams of Lion's Mane pre-workout and actually before bed. I notice this bump my sleep. Reishi is usually happening just after the workout and before bed and Cordyceps too, usually uh, upon rising and then before training uh, seems to give me a significant bump so real mushrooms are the highest quality extracts that exist anywhere and 100 organic and the cool thing that i get i don't know if you guys can get this but i get a an assay of the third party testing so you get to see what's actually in it and it always far exceeds the quality standards that anyone else has so the problems you're going to run into with this stuff typically in the market is it's mostly mycelium mycelium is not the active ingredient you know they may try to sell you as it Um, It is, it is, but it's not. And again, I'm not going to give you too many details, but if you're someone who uses mushrooms or if you're not, you want to try mushrooms, real mushrooms.com slash Ben, we'll get you 30% off your first order. So boom, shout out, head over there and I hope you enjoy this podcast. And we're live talking everything about foot mechanics with Dr. Emily Splitchall. Yes. We're Get Close. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much. It's an honor and I'm excited to talk about feet and foot mechanics.
0: Yeah, so I teach a lot about muscle mechanics. I teach people how to build muscle, and that's maybe what most people would know me for. And it's not probably until the last, well, maybe 10 years that I've been aware of the implications of feet, and maybe the last three years that I've understood the vast implications of of how much is impacting literally everything we do. Um, And I'd love to today explore all of that. And I've taught, actually, one of the most recent podcasts I did, I started explaining to people how, you know, something as simple as breath cycle can be massively um, implicated in how you move everything in the upper and lower body. And uh, tying this all together, now we bring in the foot expert to talk about uh, how to maybe optimize the way you walk and maybe improve foot function. So why don't we start off with um, talking about the current state of people's feet, meaning what footwear is doing and uh, what are the common kind of symptoms or expressions of dysfunctional feet that you're seeing in your population?
1: Yeah, I would say for the most part that trends within footwear movement, society is in a more sensory disconnected situation, just tons of cushion in the shoes, expecting that shoes have to have support. Um, If they have foot pain, they seek out something that's going to be a quick fix support type um, mechanism, which is why insoles and orthotics is literally a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I see from injury patterns within my patients is really built around this delayed relationship or interaction with the ground. And my passion with feet and podiatry and human movement is really built around a sensory perspective. A lot of people think of podiatry and feet is very mechanical, but I try to look at it also as sensory, which means that our feet are really designed to be this um, auto correction. It reads the ground with every step that we take. And if it can't anticipate the ground and correct for each step, then we essentially become more disconnected. We strike the ground harder. We don't work with the ground. Impact forces come up. So a lot of it is just that sensory disconnect.
0: Yeah. So uh, I think one thing that is a huge disconnect is people don't acknowledge kind of the, the shock impact uh, kind of function of the feet, right? It seems like you know, as you say, we're so disconnected, we're used to having these three inches of rubber underneath our feet that just allow us to kind of slap down our feet as we walk with no attention to what's going on, what, what we're making contact with, with the ground. And ultimately, just, you know, ultimately, the foot starts to lose its its natural inclination to want to, to absorb the shock. And as soon as you explain that to people, they're like, oh, that kind of makes sense. But we all seem to have really dysfunctional feet, fallen arches, and uh, atrophied foot musculature. So, Um, Is that something that you see common and and how do we start addressing that?
1: So I do see it common and my perspective as a podiatrist and a movement specialist is very much around uh, natural movement. So I actually pull my patients out of orthotics. I feel that um, the more that we think that we need those devices, we actually succumb to the overpronation and um, to the unnatural support. Where if you talk to traditional podiatrists and footwear companies, they say that because of the un- unnatural surfaces, we're now on concrete. We're not, you know, animals running in the wild or, you know, kind of the primitive side that we need. Evolutionary changes in the foot means that we almost need these art supports and shoes, which I Kind of a call on that that i feel that if we actually needed arch support because of these unnatural surfaces you know it sounds crazy but we would be born with arch supports on our on our feet you know our feet are designed to support itself um what happens is that if you don't build that underlying structure you will start to become weaker um so the more that we can tap back into natural foot function, natural foot strength, and realize that the small muscles in the feet that actually build and hold the arch up are directly responsive to sensory stimulation, specifically vibration. And vibration are ground reaction forces. So the more vibration and ground foot reactions that you can bring into the foot, you foster feed and strengthen that innate arch support that means that maybe we don't actually need arch supports. Um, There's research supporting this, research supporting that if you wear minimal footwear, you will actually see changes in your arch shape, arch height, Um, same thing as far as barefoot training, you will see changes in the arch shape. Um, And because our feet are so deeply connected to the hips and the, the pelvis and the glutes, that I would say a lot of the changes of what we see in the feet is not just to blame shoes and orthotics but also sedentary lifestyles that we're sitting on our butts that our glutes get lazy your glutes are a powerful muscle in controlling the foot
0: so so tell me how how does that tie together
1: so the the glutes being a strong external rotator so I, i like to look at the glutes not just as a strong hip extender yes it is but this external rotation moment or that transverse plane moment of the glutes has a really strong influence all the way down to the subtalar joint, which is really the, the heel bone, how it inverts and everts, it goes in and goes out. Um, it's an element of pronation or supination. And hopefully the, the listeners are familiar with those terms. But if the glutes are externally rotating, there's research that shows that you can get the average correction of an orthotic just simply by strengthening the glutes through that external rotation moment. So when I screen patients and I say, do I put you on a corrective exercise protocol or do I put you into orthotics? It's based off of the degree of correction that I would put in in their orthotic anyway, that if you can get two to three degrees of a inversion moment out of the subtalar joint and get them a little bit more towards neutral, I go to corrective exercise.
0: So you're trying to improve external rotation of the hip. And now does it matter where you're improving external rotation of the hip? For, is it from a position of internal rotation? Is it just from neutral? Like, d- does that play in?
1: Um, I mean, if you look at and you think of gait mechanics, you're really dancing from an internal to an external. So we need to make okay. sure that we can get that range of motion from both. Same okay. thing with the squat or, or, as I had said, the gait pattern. So I do like it from the internal to the external because that mimics gait and function.
0: Yeah. Now, so specifically the glute standing on that topic, I see that a lot, right? So we'll and, and that'll manifest in squatting. That'll manifest in lunging. You see people whose foot caves in, they have a flat foot, their ankle dumps in. All of a sudden it starts to manifest as hip tightness and lower back pain and all the time. Um, so it's your suggestion then to improve that, um, kind of inter inversion of the subtalar joint, just improving the hips ability to externally rotate. And that's, that's from a relatively neutral hip position. So no flexion, no extension, just relatively neutral to what the match gate cycle, or do you train all positions of hip flexion extension?
1: So all positions, but what I do want to add on to that, because that's, that's a great question as far as the specificity of how you're training it is you have to make sure that you're putting their foot in neutral first, if someone has a flexible flat foot or flexible overpronation and they're standing totally collapsed and then you're saying, okay, strengthen your foot, strengthen your glutes, engage your core, you're, you're building you in the a native. foundation. Mm-hmm. So one of the most important first steps is teaching my patients or the client or the athlete how to set their base. That's what I call it. Find it neutral. Set sure. your base. Um, you know, de-rotate into your subtalar joint and your tibia so that you're in a better position to optimize the activation of the deep core and the glutes. If you're if you're doing it on, you know, an unstable foot, I'm I'm wasting my time theoretically to try to engage your glutes.
0: Yeah, so what if someone doesn't have we talked about interoception before we started. If they don't have the proprioception, interoception to make that correction, what if they physically can't do it? They don't have the mobility or stability to access those positions. How do you and I've I've actually recently run into somebody like this, they just literally couldn't do it. So what would be the kind of first line of action to get them moving?
1: So if they if they don't have the awareness of how movements of the subtalar joint connect to a rotation element in the leg, that, that's hard for some patients to connect. They just want to, um, you know, the, the the cue where you like split the ground or tear the ground apart or something, and that's a frontal plane cue. The patient or, or a lot of individuals they can get that conceptually because it's one plane of motion. Mm-hmm. Once you start connecting, oh no, we're gonna you know, invert, that's the frontal plane, while spiraling in the transverse plane all the way to your hip, they're, just, they're lost, they don't get it. Um, so that's where you can use, I mean, that's what an orthotic does, right? It's posted and you're essentially lifting the arch artificially to get them into neutral because they, they're not connecting it. If you don't want to use an entire orthotic, you can use like a wedge. So you can buy external wedges that are angled at, you know, even like a 15 degree wedge, put it underneath the inside of the heel bone and you force them to invert, which puts them into neutral. And then you can do different exercises like that. I will do that to kind of push them into that until they can connect that mind and muscle connection to that body awareness.
0: So someone walks in and, and has uh, evidently dysfunctional feet and what's they dysfunctional man, they just don't keep not a lot of movement through the toes, not a, little, a lot of movement through the forefoot. Um, what, are, what is your basic kind of path of, of, of attack to starting to get the move? Is it like, Hey, we're going to start to get your, your, um, you know, the inversion and get you loaded through the glutes. Or are we going to start you know teaching gait cycle? Or are we going to just start teaching them like mid, mid foot splay? Like what's your, is it, do you have kind of a process you go through or is it different for everybody?
1: Yeah, so I would say most of my patients get very similar recommendations of, you know, myofascial releasing the bottom of the foot. The, it's like rolling or something? Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so you actually get a better intrinsic release if you don't roll the foot. You do a pinpoint pressure, and you just kind of hold there. Um, rad Roller makes some really good rad rounds that they go from, you know, large, medium, small, so you kind of get into there um, really well into the deep intrinsics. So doing a pinpoint pressure release, call it five minutes. I like patients to do it twice a day or before they train that starts to get into some of the stickiness of the tissue. Um, some of the stickiness that can adhere down onto nerves. Cause a lot of these neuroma symptoms are just stickiness within fascial tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to add that intrinsic muscles of the foot are inverters. So when you get someone who has a very rigid, high arched foot, like a pathological one, oftentimes it is just over contraction and spasticity in the intrinsic muscles. So you want to release those. If I go into the digits, I'll use a product like correct toes or a toe spacer to try to get not just toe splay, but what you do when you do toe splay is you stretch the small ligaments that are connecting the metatarsal heads Mm -hmm. and connect the small muscles down into the rest of the foot. So I try to get four foot uh, toe splay. Four foot splay is actually different than toe splay where four foot splay is the actual met heads spreading away from each other. The best way to optimize that is you could either do a trigger point release to the ball of the foot, or you can use something like a metatarsal pad, which is like a, an easy hack that I like to use. If you put a metatarsal pad on the ball of the foot or just short of the ball of the foot in the met heads, when they step down, it's going to force a splay which stretches the ligaments that are part of that forefoot. Um, Those ligaments of the forefoot, I will add, are actually connected to your plantar fascia. So this is very beneficial for people with plantar fasciitis or might be at risk of plantar fasciitis, is a lot of people will look at calves, ankle, and then literally the plantar fascia, But a lot of it is that the plantar fascia extends forward and then splits out and inserts into all five digits and then connects all of the met heads to each other. So forefoot splay, toe splay is really important for plantar fasciitis. Um, So I'll do that and then I'll get into myofascial release of the lower extremity. And then I start to bring that into, I'm a big believer in your foot's connecting to your deep core muscles. So before I start doing any sort of, Um, exercise programming that mimics gait or anything like that, I make sure that the feet intrinsics are communicating and co-contracting with the deep core intrinsics. If you don't establish that first and you start to do exercises for the glutes and other muscles, whether it's mimicking a gait pattern or not, you're not laying the foundational muscular coordination that is necessary for stability.
0: Okay, so what does that look like? How do we start connecting those <laughs> things? Because again, assuming that people have any idea what you're talking about when you're talking about this intrinsic floor musculature, I'm gonna assume is, is very unlikely.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so what does it look like to start connecting with someone with their internal pelvic musculature?
1: Yeah, I, and I apologize for anyone who's listening, if you're like, no, I did not had my espresso yes. for this <laughs> podcast, um, but I clearly did. So um, the intrinsics of the foot, are are obviously the deep you could consider them the foot core mm-hmm. some people will actually call them that that's your foot's core deep core intrinsic muscles your core literal core your abs your pelvis has those similar deep intrinsic muscles which would be your pelvic floor your transverse abdominals your deep hip rotators and fascially these muscles are connected to your deep foot muscles. And then also from a muscle synergy, it's actually built within co-activation that when your deep intrinsics engage, technically your pelvic floor should engage. And that's how we build stability to stand up and walk in gravity. Everything about your, your muscles and your nervous system is built around the fact that we are bipedal and we stand up in gravity. So how do you navigate, navigate gravity? How do you uh, respond to it? How do you resist, which the pelvic floor is an anti-gravity muscle. So it stimulates by lifting up against the weights of gravity coming down and gravity, in my opinion, is one of the best proprioceptive stimuli to the nervous system and to the neuromuscular system. How can you optimize that stimulation? And it's really between the feet and the core.
0: Okay. So. You know, short of someone coming to see you and getting all this manual stimulation, uh, assume, I'm going to say from my experience, and you'll probably agree with this, 90% or more of the listeners are going to have a locked up subtalar joint, they're going to have locked up midfoot, they're going to have decreased foot function and, and, and toe mobility and function, and um, what can they do sitting at home? Like again, we got this 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 midfoot thing you spoke of. That's useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like getting the subtailer moving, getting the toes moving, what are some action items that we can we could apply right away because hey, this is where we're gonna start moving us toward actually having some semblance of foot function?
1: Yeah, so I mean, really what I had said, there there are products on the line that um, I think one is called black blackboard to so essentially it differentiates the midfoot midfoot slash forefoot to the rear foot and you yep. are essentially getting these couple of motions. So it's just something you
0: put like under your midfoot and you'll put in your yeah. shoe or you use it in yeah. your training circle? Yeah. Yep.
1: And then you're rotating like this. You yep. can do that. You can hundred percent you can do that. You could just stand with your feet shoulder width apart. And if I turn to the right side, well now I just supinated one foot and pronated the other. So I can do these rotations that rotation of the torso, rotation of the hips. Is going to drive this subtalar slash midfoot unlocking. Um, you can a hundred percent do that. I try to take it more so on release the uh, intrinsics, release the pelvis, release the t spine, and then doing complex movements around that, which could be you know lunge, uh, lunging in multi directional patterns, doing something where you're kind of doing. Uh, reciprocal patterning that in itself will drive the subtalar joint unlocking without using foot in isolation, subtalar joint unlocking. I actually don't, I don't, I don't go in that direction. People can, they get super geeked out about the feet. I try to keep it as integrated as I can with any of my foot mobilization, my foot stabilization, and then integrated foot strength.
0: And that makes so much more sense, I think. So, so many people tend to look at it in isolation, right? So they see an expression here, this is the injury and this is where it's expressing, let's fix that. And that never makes sense, right? In, in my mind, it's always like, okay, what's causing this thing and, and what are some things that if I if I work on these two or three things, will have the greatest immediate result on uh, not just seeing an improvement in, in the movement of this specific thing, but also applying it into my life, right? like I want to be able to walk, I want to be able to lunge, I don't just want to be able to move, move my subtalar joint.
1: Yeah, 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 I mean I find, that's why I do a gait assessment on every patient, whether it's you know an ingrown toenail for all I care, I don't see ingrown toenails anymore, but if I did, it would be me doing a gait assessment and then most of what you see in the foot, honestly you can tie back to the T-spine and the pelvis, which is why I focus a lot on those areas still in conjunction with the foot but as you had said instead of doing foot isolation kind of mindset i try to always look holistically at the body
0: so now let's talk about chicken or the egg is it is it the foot causing the t-spine and the pelvis stuff or is it the t-spine and pelvis causing the foot
1: (laughs) it depends um and that it is hard to say and give you know tons of examples on that that's the skill of the clinician or the practitioner. And a lot of that's based off of experience and seeing, you know, a myriad of patients presenting with different things. If I have, let's say, for example, um, a patient who's a cyclist who has uh, torn their right labrum, their hip labrum. And now I know that they have delayed stabilization in the hip. They do because they tore connective tissue. So, Inherently, you're going to have just a little bit slower rate of stabilization of that that structure and that joint. It's going to mani- manifest itself, or it could, on the timing of stabilization of the foot, which means they could be hitting the ground a little bit harder or a little bit less stable than they should be, and now they have chronic plantar fasciitis on the same side as the torn hip labrum. That's something that you have to connect through. Really, it's... No Western medicine test is going to show that. That is like a clinical medicine or an experience of being able to connect those those associations. Sure. But that, that's a big one that I see. That would obviously be an example of a top-down, right? But if I have a bottom-up, let's say that I have a patient or an athlete that has chronic post-tib tendinitis, tendinosis, post-tib. Um, partial tear because of some sort of hypermobility in their foot, or maybe they are an athlete that is uh, asymmetrically dominant in pronation. Um, I see it in like fencing is for some reason I see a lot of fencers Um, that the position of fencing forces pronation on one foot because it's unilaterally dominant. Mm -hmm. Let's say that athlete came to me with chronic post-tip issues on the back leg That, and now it's starting to manifest itself as an unstable SI joint or some sort of, you know, lazy glutes on that same side. That would be a bottom-up. So those would be two examples of um, the clinical experience of being able to differentiate those.
0: Awesome. So let's talk about gait cycle. So we we assume that if someone's foot is dysfunctional, their pelvis is dysfunctional, their, their gait, their walk is going to in some way be... Uh, you know, dysfunctional, which then is going to express as every movement ultimately being dysfunctional. Um, You mentioned before we started that there's some particular patterns you're looking for. And first, I'd like to talk, is there such a thing as the optimal gait? Like when someone foot strikes, what should that feel like? Should there be a natural pattern through the foot? What are you looking for when you do assess somebody's gait?
1: Yeah. So uh, gait is very complex. (laughs) So we could do a whole podcast just on gait um, on how to do a gait assessment. But I was taught as a podiatrist how to assess gait, just the foot. So we could go on and on about a gait assessment and ideal gait patterns as the foot rolls through inversion to neutral back to to inversion and, and things like that, as far as the positions that the foot has to go through. So I want to focus on that. First, and then we can kind of expand out of that. Um, Ideally, when it comes to a walking gait pattern, we are supposed to strike the ground on the outside of the heel. Everyone most likely knows that because they wear down their shoes on the outside or if you have running shoes and you're a heel striker, oftentimes it'll have a different density of foam or material on the outside. We strike inverted outside of the heel and then we quickly roll into or through eversion, which in internal rotation, which is why I'm doing this, which is how you load the energy of impact forces. And then when we're on our legs, that's so initial contact loading response. And then you're standing on one leg. So now I'm in mid stance. I need to be neutral in mid stance because I'm stable. I need to be neutral. And then when I bring my leg behind me, that's called late mid stance. This is where you need all your ankle dorsiflexion. You are technically neutral in that position this is the key 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 thing when it comes to assessing gait is in late mid stance which is maximum ankle dorsiflexion you're supposed to be neutral and then from there you shift forward onto the ball of your foot
0: so neutral from perspective of inversion eversion
1: uh yes so you are neutral you are neutral and then you shift forward to the ball of your foot and you're in the position which is like if you do a Uh, calf raise, right? That's called a rigid lever. That is the most important position of the human foot. And in that position, you are inverted again. So if I go back, you strike the ground inverted, you evert to neutral, you stay neutral in, in mid stance, you stay neutral in late mid stance, and then you invert as you're as you're taking off the ground. So the whole biggest takeaway here is that we we are either in inversion or neutral throughout the gate cycle. The eversion that is happening when we walk, you cannot see it with the naked eye. If you can see it, the patient or the athlete is pronating or everting too much because everything is a fine little wi- window or we're like a seesaw that you're inverting and everting, but you kind of want to dance in this narrow range. If you like really invert or really evert, it's just a timing thing. You don't have time to re-invert your foot to get off of the ground, which is why we have to dance in this narrow, narrow window of range of motion with the foot. Everything is just a couple degrees.
0: So talk to me about length of stride and how that's going to be implicated in, in gait. Yes.
1: Yeah, so stride length is one of the most important changes that happened in our gait. So, if people believe in evolution or not, I, I'm not here to have that argument. I'm a big believer in, in evolution, just being a, a scientist in, in that sense. That if you look at the difference between uh, uh, the way an, a primate walks, a monkey or an ape walks, versus a human walk, the one of the biggest difference is the stride length that we are able to take. The stride length was critical to how we were able to pick up our pace. right? So if you take longer strides, you can pick up the pace. When you pick up the pace, you actually start to get increased blood flow and the increase of blood flow of longer strides and pace was a pivotal change to the evolution of the human brain and the development of the neocortex. So that means ideal bipedalism or walking requires a certain stride to really feed your brain and the stimulation of brain growth factor. Now, if we, to to take a, a long stride, we need to have optimal range of motion. And a lot of that range of motion is connected between foot and ankle and pelvis. If you have super tight hip flexors, you're not taking a long stride, right? You might turn your feet out to try to take a longer stride, but you just don't have that range of motion in the pelvis. If your static baseline is lordotic or in an anterior tilt, when we walk to take a stride, you have to go from neutral to anterior. That's how you take a stride. You're not getting a stride. You will either start to compress your lumbar or take it from somewhere else. Same thing with the ankle. You don't have range of motion. You're gonna shorten your stride. Or if you can't get over your big toe, you're not going to take a big stride. You either turn your feet out or you shorten your stride. So one of the biggest, biggest changes that I see are contributors to musculoskeletal joint pain of really any age is that you have the insufficient range of motion to take this optimal stride. So you're not feeding the body, the brain, the fascial system. It's, it's really necessary for really optimizing evolution Is you have to take a certain stride.
0: Yeah. So I think a lot of the listeners, or at least a lot of people that I work with tend to have that externally rotated uh, hip uh, structure, musculature, whatever it is. Where does that usually begin? I'm sure there's many places where that could begin. And if you could kind of walk us down is, is the, you know, if I, is the best course of action improving the glute, improving the foot? Like, can you just, you know, that specific instance? Yeah.
1: So if you, if you see someone who they stand, abducted or externally rotated like a duck, whatever you want to use, that position, a lot of times we see it, that's a a chicken or egg thing, right? So did they start turning out because the ankle was tight? And let's say it's like an athlete or, um, you know, someone who's, um, you know, avid gym goer is You can't squat if you have restricted ankle dorsiflexion, so people turn out. You essentially kind of bypass the ankle. And then if you think about the ankle mobility that's needed to walk, people turn out in late mid stance. So that's one of the most common compensations you'll see is someone at late mid stance, they turn their foot out, and then they essentially pronate down. Um, So the ankle is a huge driver to it. Now, did you have a subtle limited ankle dorsiflexion and then you kept compensating and that compensation led to this domination of of glutes and external rotation and then when you do that you start to lose centration of the femur within the hip joint and when you lose centration or you you lose that ideal femoral head position in the socket that in itself restricts ankle range of motion or sorry that restricts hip range of motion So then you compensate even further. It becomes a very vicious cycle in that sense. Um, I see that a lot of people who have restricted ankle dorsiflexion because they compensate and they walk abducted, they start to stress the first MPJ or the big toe. So now they have arthritis there. Maybe they have a bunion. It becomes arthritic. And then they don't have the range of motion if they were to rotate back to neutral and ambulate that way. It's a very... Damaging gait pattern. Um, And then if you think of stride length, you can't take long strides if you're turned out like that. So, what people do, if you can't take a long stride, everyone's going to start doing gait assessments after this. If you can't take a long stride, right, um, when you see someone walking, I'll just stand up for this just so people get, you'll see kind of this rotational. I'm exaggerating it. But if you don't get this T spine pelvis spiral within the spine and the body from the foot all the way up, someone who has an abducted gait is going to walk like this. So you actually see, and then their feet, each step is out like this. Right. Right. So you become, uh, you are using different spinal movements as a compensation. And those are not the spinal movements that they're supposed to be, which just leads to transfer stress.
0: Now you brought up earlier that there may be some implications with that with respect to the autonomic nervous system. So my brain goes to that. Your, your, your brain is constantly taking that introception of where you are in space. And um, have you had any thought around how that's going to be implicated in brain function and stress, that lateral, that lateral frontal movement? Like I'm going to guess like, yeah, I don't know. Thought.
1: Yeah. I mean that. If you if you adopt an insufficient pattern, well, actually, this is what it could be because it's, it's so complex. The human body is so complex that we don't know how someone is going to interpret that pattern versus another. But let's say if you're doing correctives and trying to get a client or an athlete or patient out of a less efficient movement pattern, we'll call it that, and you try to get them into something that's more ideal, but they're set base of safety and repetition is at that insufficient pattern, they could freak out as soon as you shift them into something that technically is more ideal, and then that throws off this complexity of the autonomic nervous system. I would really go in that route.
0: Yeah. My my brain goes toward like how, um, you know, typical spinal movements of the breath cycle. So a breath cycle, obviously, you're having this this kind of sagittal expansion and flexion extension of the spine. If you change that to lateral, it's going to change breath cycle, which is then going to change the autonomic nervous system and change the brain. Ultimately, so it'd be very interesting to see how, you know, someone who gets into these frontal lateral side bending movements, uh, again, I totally know people that do that. I just never thought about it at that level. Uh, how that's going to directly impact breath cycle, right? So it, it, maybe their breath cycle now becomes, uh, maybe it's no longer diaphragmatic, maybe it's no longer extended, or they're not able to not able to extend into certain positions. Maybe implicated in hip position, shoulder position, and then maybe going all the way up into the autonomic nervous system.
1: Yeah, no, there's there's a a program called somatics. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But, part of somatics is that we have a red, red red light reflex and then a green light reflex, where a green light reflex is sympathetic, where you're you're kind of standing like you're on guard. So they have overactive erectors kind of popped up this way, ready to fight or flight. That's a postural manifestation of their stress state. And then there's a red light reflex, which is kind of a disassociation or the ventral vagus nerve, which is part of the autonomic nervous system and the polyvagal theory, that people that disassociate and have more like a depressive state or a detachment, that they'll actually come forward. And 100% both of those postural changes or walking in this side to side pattern affects breathing. 100% that you can connect it back to the diaphragm.
0: Yeah, so I didn't wanna um quickly gloss over bunions because I think that's a big thing for a lot of people. Um, is there, is this something you can fix or is it surgery? Is surgery necessary? Cause it is ultimately calcification of that joint. Is it not?
1: Yeah. So a bunion, um, for the most part, and this is me being a functional podiatrist, a natural podiatrist is that a true bunion is a structural deformity, which means that when you get to a certain, uh, degree or severity of a bunion, you're really either you're pushing pause on it, or you have to have surgery, you cannot try to compress the foot back in or stretch it or strap it or strengthen it um, to try to get that bunion to reverse. And this is because it's structural, it's within the joint. Um, the a bunion, for those that are not familiar with it, think of this as the metatarsals, one of the metatarsal swings out like this, and then you have the toe that's connected, and then that's creating the bunion. The deformity is actually at the joint further back, which is called the metacuneiform joint. It's not, it's, it's not even a big toe deformity. Bunions are a midfoot deformity. And that's what I want people to think that the breakdown, the loss of stability and where the access of deformity is, is in the midfoot. Um, so True corrections of bunions are a little bit more complex than using correctos and bunion splints and doing short foot and trying to strengthen the foot. Um, what I will say is if you have a small bunion or the foot type that makes you susceptible to getting bunions, which is an unstable, hypermobile, overpronated foot or flat foot, you are susceptible to getting bunions because we get bunions. When the midfoot is not stable and essentially the metatarsal unlocks and it swings out. So for those individuals, strengthen your feet, really focus on, you know, tapping into the intrinsics, keep your glutes strong, keep your core strong, make sure you're not wearing shoes that are going to favor kind of that pointed toe position. Um, That's what I would say for bunions and those that are preventing them Mm -hmm. versus reacting to them.
0: Awesome. So now what's your best line of uh, attack or your best strategy to get women out of pointy shoes Mm
1: -hmm. or anyone
0: out of pointy shoes, ultimately? Because we know that things that are restricting the toes are ultimately going to impact everything. Right. And do you have kind of a a single line of attack or is it always multifaceted?
1: Uh, It would be multifaceted being. Yeah, I just moved to Arizona, but for 10 years I was practicing in Manhattan. So, from here, trying to tell someone who's in fashion or a high level, you know, C level uh, woman that, okay, we have to get out of the shoes. They might not come back to see you. Um, But it's giving realistic uh, understanding of the impact of those shoes. If you are going to wear heels because maybe your job requires it, people might not believe that, but just, you know, Go with me that maybe their job requires it. Then at the end of the day, can you stretch your feet, stretch your calves, release your, your intrinsics, use correct toes, open up your hips and your pelvis. So understand the damage that those shoes do to your body and your feet. And then let's reverse it at the end of the day so that you're not kind of manifesting those, those subtle changes. And then um, honestly, a majority of my patients that I see come to me because they know that I'm in favor of minimal natural wide-toed footwear. Um so they know that I'm not going to tell them to wear something that is you know thick, supportive and cushioned. There are a few exceptions. Um, are you familiar with anything that's rocker based, like a four-foot rocker? Yeah. You know, sketchers shape up. Which um, I recommend yeah. Skechers Shape Up.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Because I just, you know, don't respect sketchers but there are other shoes that have a slight rocker in them. Hoka is one that probably a lot of the listeners are familiar with. Hoka is a rocker based shoe in the sense that if you take a Hoka, you can't can't fold a Hoka. It has a plastic piece in their case, a plastic piece that runs through the entire shoe and it allows you to roll through and use the shoe to take the stress off of your forefoot. So this is great for people who have maybe bunion pain, maybe um, they had turf toe or some sort of capsulitis issue, arthritis in the big toe issues in the second, maybe ball of foot pain, maybe neuroma pain. So a lot of forefoot issues, I will actually go towards like a Hoka, even though I know that they're thick, but they might need the rocker aspect of the shoe. And then inside it, I'll put the Novoso insoles so that they get sensory despite all of the cushion of a hoka.
0: Do you think a lot of these issues could be alleviated if we just didn't put our children into really crappy shoes really, early?
1: Most likely, yes. <laughs> Again, everything is the timing, timing of the foot. So a neuroma, it honestly is that they're not stabilizing the foot fast enough. And part of the stabilization of the foot is that you have to move some of the soft tissue out of the way. So it actually retracts.
0: So can you and explain what neuroma is? Because somebody actually had that question and said, what causes Morton's neuroma?
1: Absolutely, so a neuroma, uh, a lot of people know it as Morton's neuroma. Morton's neuroma is just one of the neuromas that you can get in your foot. It's the one that's between uh, toes three and four. So that's, that's Morton's neuroma. But you can get a neuroma in between any metatarsal head And it's essentially a ball of scarred nerve tissue. It's the the nerves in the bottom of the foot cross kind of like how my hands are. And wherever they cross, you can create this bundle of nerve tissue. The nerve tissue gets scarred when it gets pinched or compressed or irritated because the soft tissue of the foot is not retracting out of the way that it kind of compresses and gets in the way of that that nerve bundle. The timing of how you retract tissue out of the way is based off of sensory ability to anticipate the ground. Shoes take that away.
0: Very fascinating. What are your favorite shoes currently? Do you have a preferred brand or a number of different brands that you like?
1: Yeah. So I like obviously anything minimal. um, Vivo Barefoot. I like um, Vibram, I still wear those, the five finger shoes that I'm, I'm a, I'm original. <laughs> yeah. I love them. Um, honestly, the reason why I like uh, Vibram and what I look for in, in certain shoes is I, I was a gymnast, so I do a lot of body weight and to get deep core strength, I actually plantar flex my ankle or point my toes. So that engages the intrinsics of the foot. A lot of minimal shoes don't allow I mean, so don't allow that movement. Right. The, the V specifically like their indoor studio shoes. That's really what I wear. Um, allow that movement. It's almost more like a martial arts shoe or a gymnastics shoe. Um, but some other shoes that I like is zero shoes is a great shoe, especially for kind of like a CrossFit type environment. Um, feel grounds. This is a newer yeah, one. Yeah. They're, they're great. They're super comfortable. Um, and really any of the other minimals, New Balance Minimus, Um, what I find is that if you're looking at all of the minimal shoes and they're all quasi similar, then it becomes an element of preference, right? Because the fit is going to be for the most part, they all have a wide toe box. They all have minimal, you know, um, minimal cushion. They all have, you know, zero to no heel toe drop. They all have the ability to rotate and torsion within the shoe. So if they're all similar, then it becomes either a preference of aesthetics, like which shoe looks attractive, or which one you know maybe uses a material that you like. Some of them are vegan. Um, so that's where I try to give a list to patients, and then it's really up to them because they're all you know minimal.
0: Right. So someone who's been wearing you know high heels or thick-soled shoes for their entire life and they, they want to make the switch to um, some minimalist shoes, uh, how often or how long do you recommend people walking in these things on a day-to-day basis as they make the transition?
1: Yeah, so as people transition from, let's say, high heels or um, a traditional heel-toe drop or something that's just very structured, has a heel counter, has a midsole shank going through it, something like that, is... To make sure that as you're doing the transition, one, don't go from you know a super structured shoe to a Vivo barefoot that's super minimal and then walk 10,000 steps through Manhattan I would, every day. Like I, I wouldn't do that abrupt of a transition. I would go from your super supportive to all of the transition shoes that are on the market. A lot of the shoes that people like um, like on running, um, New Balance Minimus, um, Nike Free even. Those are all really transitional shoes. They're not totally minimal zero drop. That's where I would put is like a step one if you're, let's say, pounding the pavement with it. And then as you're doing the transition, you need to make sure that you're releasing your feet every day. At the end of the day, you know, standing on the golf balls or the rad rounds or something, use the correct toes, stretch your calves, Just make sure you're doing a little bit of recovery at the end of each day because your stress level on your feet and body is going to go up initially because you're doing this transition and you're so used to um, the super supportive shoe or like a high heel. I will then also say that the environment that you can go all the way minimal, so let's say the most minimal vivo barefoot that's out there would be in the gym setting. So the gym is where I see a great transition period if you're doing squats or, you know, you're doing your lunges and you're doing your standard workouts, if you're sprinting, obviously not. Or if you're doing a bunch of like ballistic box jumps and jumping rope and things, then I would say maybe don't go fast, minimal. But for most people, you know, they're, you know, they're on the elliptical, they're doing their squats, they're doing the lunges, they're doing whatever their standard workout is. That's where they can be in a controlled environment as minimal as possible. I would actually say be barefoot if you can in the gym setting. If you're barefoot, no shoes, that is ideal. And then on the street, you're transitional.
0: So, even barefoot for people who have dysfunctional feet. So, like no arch, you know, overpronated, still barefoot in the gym?
1: In a controlled environment, not ballistics. So, this is, they're not doing box okay. jumps and jumping rope. But if they're doing a squat, they're doing lunges, they're doing TRX, like whatever it is they're doing, They can do that barefoot, 100%, because there's not high impact that is going through their body. Could they understand how to set their base so they get actually more proper engagement of the glutes and up? 100%. So that's what I would teach them is find neutral, set your base, and then let's do it barefoot. So you get sensory, you get your intrinsic firing, you get this natural connection to the ground. That's where I would put them.
0: Amazing. Dr. Emily, what's the name of your book? Can you tell us where to get it?
1: Yes, so Barefoot Strong, you can get on Amazon. Um, It is on Barnes and Noble, iTunes, it's an ebook, um, and then barefootstrong.com as well.
0: And tell us about your insoles and and what exactly they do.
1: Yeah, so my my insoles that I developed, I have them here just because it's easier to explain. Um, So, Naboso, these are our insoles. Naboso technology is a proprioceptive or sensory. Uh, insole and mat company that I developed three years ago and I developed the material as a way to enhance barefoot stimulation, foot stimulation um, in a training environment or foot stimulation activation in a shod or shoe environment. Uh, We already discussed how a lot of people are disconnected from their feet, disconnected from the sensory, that's where these injuries happen or less efficient movement patterns. So the more that you can feel your foundation, feel the ground, you are then able to enhance your motor patterns, your coordination, your posture, reduce your injuries. Um so it's something that people think it seems like too simple <laughs> t- to work. Right. Um, but if you can see, I just want to show the so that people can see the texture that's across it. Mm-hmm. But, so there's little pyramids across all of the insoles and all of the mats, and those little pyramids are very specific to a certain nerve in the bottom of the feet. And that nerve is similar to how we read braille. So it's the same nerve. When your hand reads braille, it's called an SA1 mechanoceptor. We stimulate the same nerve in the feet. It's a textured pattern that the brain recognizes. And when you're very specific to input to the brain, you obviously get response like a very predictable responses so we have people with neuropathy that honestly could not feel their feet and they can feel their feet again Um, people with parkinson's and ms who had you know very imbalanced gait and they're running i mean quite profound things Uh, we work with a lot of athletes because athletes is all about subtlety in change creates a large um athletic advantage so we try to kind of Uh, explain or offer that ability through the feet. Um, And it's really the only product like it on the market that is trying to take what minimal footwear did to the industry and just the whole barefoot running boom did to the industry, and then just take it one step further to access the foot even more.
0: Awesome. Well, everybody listening, take care of your feet. It's a huge part of performance, whether you're running, doing some dynamic or even just lifting the gym. It's your foundation of support. It's the foundation of walking. Dr. Emily, thank you so much for your wisdom.
1: Thank you so much. It was so much fun.
0: And there we have it, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for tuning into my conversation with Emily Schplickle. Uh Emily, I apologize if I don't say your name correctly. It's an interesting one but uh, so much value. So thank you for being here. And again, just to reiterate guys, your feet are massive, massively important. And even if it's something as simple as walking mindfully every day, that's a simple action item you can take. If you don't wanna take action doing foot exercises, if you maybe don't even wanna change your footwear, try walking in something that's a little less restrictive to your foot and allows maybe for a little bit more of an open toe splay, mid foot splay. Uh, So, kind of spreading those toes open and allow for more of a dynamic motion through your foot, more through your midfoot. And if you do have fallen arches, great. Let's use this as an opportunity to create an awareness around hey, how do I actually change this fallen arch? The reason you have a fallen arch is because the muscles are weak, and that's literally it. I had a fallen arch for 20 years, and now I have a pretty significant arch. Just from my practice of yoga, you know, of ultimately creating that arch, splaying my feet and doing a lot of single leg standing balance work really drove those muscles to learn to contract again. And now I have much less knee pain, almost no hip pain, uh, and certainly great mobility as it improves year on year. So thank you very much to Emily Splicko for being here. One more shout out to our sponsor for today, realmushrooms.com slash Ben gets you guys 30% off. Don't just use the mushrooms I use, I suggest you try all of them. Uh, They have a product called the Five Defenders, which is perfect for right now, which is gonna help your body bump your immune system so we can get through this challenging time and ultimately have a strong immune system, not only just to to not get sick, but ultimately to thrive. Your body's ability to be healthy is dependent on its ability to adapt to stress. And the more resilient you are to stress, the more anti-fragile you become to stress, the more you can push, the more you can grow. Have a great day, guys. Thank you so much for being here. If you enjoy this podcast, I would love it if you share at least one person you know and love. Give us a shout out on social media. We always love to hear from you. All the comments I get from you guys are just incredible. And I'm so grateful that so many of you guys are resonating with my mission, uh, my personal mission and the mission of the brand. And uh, thank you, guys. I appreciate you being here. Um, Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a minute. Have a great day. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love.